All right, well, good morning, church. Happy Easter to you. Uh, Listen, for those of you who are new here, my name is Will Franco. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, if you're visiting us here on this Easter Sunday morning, we are just so glad you are here. Uh, We want you to know that we started this church for people just like you and that regardless of where you are on your spiritual journey, whether this is your first time ever at church or your first time back at church in a long time, we want you to know that there's a place for you here at Tri-Village Church. One of the things that we say here to people who are visiting is we love to say, here at Tri-Village, you are welcomed, you are wanted, and you are needed. And, And we mean it. We mean it. You are welcomed, wanted, and needed. And so we're so glad that you're here hanging out with us this morning. Now, if you're new to the whole church thing and you just happen to come today and you're like, what's going on here? What's all the hoopla about? Uh, The reason why we're so excited is because today is the day where we as the church celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we, amen. And so that's why we're excited because we have a savior who died, but then came back to life. And so that's what we're celebrating here this morning. Now, this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to celebrate and commemorate the resurrection, uh, but we are going to look at the resurrection of Jesus through a very unique lens, okay? So, so this morning, we are going to celebrate the resurrection, but we're going to do it in a very unique and very unorthodox way. Like, I would put money down to say that you probably have never heard an Easter sermon on this topic, okay? So we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at the resurrection of Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament tabernacle, okay? Now, uh, before you walk out or fall asleep, okay, uh, let me explain how I came about uh, this subject this morning. Uh, a few months ago, I was hanging out with uh, one, of my, one of my best friends. He's a, a pastor down in Florida. We were hanging out uh, just like buddies, you know, and, and sometimes pastors, when they hang out, they start talking about theology because we're boring like that. And he was like, man, I got to tell you something that I learned the other day. He's like, at my church, we had this uh, professor come and talk to us about the connection between the tabernacle and the gospel of John. And he just started talking to me about this stuff. And, and, I, and I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a very excitable person. I get excited easy, especially when we start talking about Jesus. And so I almost crashed the car like three times. I was like, wait, what, what? Like, like, you're kidding. That's in the Bible, you know? I was just so pumped about the whole thing. And, and, and so what I did when I got home, being the nerd that I am, I spent hours just researching everything that he had talked to me about. And sure enough, it was exactly how he said. It was actually better because the more I looked into it, the, the, the more connections I saw and the more encouraged I was. But here's what's so fascinating. This was a few months ago. As I was doing the research, I, I felt the Lord say to me, this is what I want you to preach on for Easter. It was, almost, it was almost like the news that I was discovering was so good that I had to bring it on the biggest Sunday possible because I needed as many people to hear it as possible, okay? And so what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at um, the resurrection through the lens of the Old Testament tabernacle. And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at this subject under two headings. We are going to look at the religious approach, and then we are going to look at the resurrected approach. What I would argue this morning is that every single person in here falls into one of these two categories. Every person in this room and every person on planet earth falls into one of these two categories. You are either approaching God in a religious approach or you are approaching God in a resurrected approach, okay? And I will show you what those two mean in a second. So so let's begin this morning by looking at the religious approach. Now, 
In the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Exodus, here's what we discover. In the book of Exodus, at the beginning of Exodus, the Israelites are still in captivity in Egypt. And then what God starts to do through plagues and miracles is he starts to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. By the time we get to Exodus chapter 14, God has already delivered them. They're already through the Red Sea, and they're on their way to the wilderness. A few chapters later, in Exodus chapter 20, God gives the Israelites the law. In other words, he, he creates a covenant between them and him. Okay? Now, usually that's the chapter that many of us kind of drop out on because it gets really boring after that. He starts talking about rules and laws and temples and tabernacles and goats and sheep. And people are like, nah, man, I'm not, I don't got time for this. Okay? As a matter of fact, when most people try to read the Bible, that's usually when they stop, like right around the second half of Exodus where it gets really too much, too much detail, right? But here's what's so interesting. In Exodus chapter 25 through 28, God gives Moses, and as a result to Israelites, he gives them specific directions and very specific uh, specifications for the tabernacle that he wants them to build, okay? Now, the question is, why would God want to build a tabernacle? We see in Scripture that he, he leads them in the, in the wilderness with, with a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. So, why the need for a building? Why, why a need for a tent where he has to dwell in? Well, what scholars say is that the reason why God tells them to create a tabernacle is because God wanted Israel to know that what made Israel different wasn't the size of their nation. It wasn't the courage of their nation. It wasn't the wisdom of their nation. It was that he was with their nation. That, that, that they were different because God was with them. And so he gives them the tabernacle, not for his sake, but for their sake. He wanted to give them a tangible reminder that I am always with you. It is a tangible expression and manifestation of God's presence. Out of all the places on planet Earth, out of all the places in the universe that God could have been, he chose to be in that tent with that group of people. Okay? So here's what happens. In Exodus 25 through 28, God starts giving them the, the, the rundown, what, what he wants for this tabernacle. And what he does is not only does he give them the, 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 the dimensions and the specifications for the actual tabernacle, but then he starts talking to them about the pieces of furniture that he wants to be connected to this building that needs to be built. So what I'm going to do for the next few minutes, I need you to put your thinking caps on for a second. Okay, we're going to get a little bit nerdy here. I'm going to walk through some of the furniture, actually all the furniture, that God has them create. And the reason why I'm doing it is because it's going to set it up for what we will do later. Okay, so the first piece of furniture, that, well, before I give you that, let me give you a rundown or a layout of the tabernacle. Okay, here's what the Old Testament tabernacle looked like. You would, you would go in from east to west. That's important. We'll come back to that later. The first thing that you would run into as an Israelite, as you went into the court, is you would hit the altar, the bronze altar. We'll look at that in a second. Then after that, you would hit the, la the laver or the basin to, to, for purification. And then after those two things, you would get into the actual tabernacle, okay? So I want to just give you this, this overview so that you can get an idea of what's going on, so that as we look at each individual piece, you kind of know where it is in, in relation to the tabernacle, Okay. So the first piece of furniture that God wanted them to create was the altar, the bronze altar, or it's called the brazen altar. Now, here's what's interesting about the brazen altar. 
The, the brazen altar is where all the Israelites made their sacrifices. So get this. God in his sovereignty, the first thing he wanted Israelites to see when they walked into the temple court or the, the tabernacle court, he wanted, to see, he wanted them to see an altar where animals needed to be sacrificed. Okay? That's the first thing God needed them to see. Now, here, here's how it worked. If you were an Israelite, like, like let me, in our day, if you sin, you, 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 you go in, in, in a private place, you pray, and you ask God to forgive you. In those days, that's not how it worked. In those days, if you sinned, you had to take an animal, a bull or a sheep or a goat, and then you had to go into the court and into, up to this altar, and there would always be a priest there morning and evening, all day, and you would bring this animal to him. You would tell him what you did wrong. Then he would take the animal. He would put it on the altar. He would lay his hand on the head of the animal. It's, in other words, he was, what, he was, what he was representing was he was passing your sin onto the animal, and then he would slice the animal's throat. This happened again and again and again and again and again. Every day, from morning to night, it was a line of people with their animal in their hand, sacrificing an animal for their sin. This was a very bloody, very gross altar. And the only people that can do it were the priests. You had to tell the priest what you did, and then the priest had to transfer your sin to the animal and then sacrifice the animal. Now, here's the thing about this altar. If you could see that great thing that you see kind of on the floor, it, 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 it's part of the, the it's, you're supposed to go inside of it. And, and what it is is you actually had a fire going on. There was a fire in the altar that was always going. So the animals, as they were being sacrificed, were also being burned. So if you see those four horns, the reason why those horns were important, two reasons. One, because horns represented victory, but, but also because those horns would be used to tie down the animal. They had ropes tied to each uh, horn, and then you have to tie the animal down. Uh, an animal's not going to stay over live fire, okay? So, so you had to tie the animal down. Once the animal was tied down, then they would do the sacrifice. But that, that was constantly burning. And then at the end of the day, they would take the ashes and they would take them outside of the camp. But that's what you see. So here's what I need you to see here, okay? God needed the Israelites to know that in order for them to have fellowship with him, something had to die. In order for you to come into my presence, there needed to be a substitute. You can't just walk in here however you, you want because I'm God and you're not. I'm holy and you're not. So the first image that God wanted them to have is that a sacrifice was needed, okay? Now, let's look at the next thing. When you look at the tabernacle, the second thing that happens, and this, this is between the altar and the tabernacle, is the, the laver or the, the, the watch basin, okay? Now, here's what's interesting about this. This laver, and you can tell by the picture that it's a, it's a priest, the, an Israelite couldn't go any further than the altar. So every piece of furniture that I'm going to show you now only related to the Levites, only related to the priests. Only the priests can do these things, okay? And this laver, this, this basin, it was there to purify. It meant to, it was to, to cleanse you, to purify you. So as a priest, what you would do is before you did anything, you would get up in the morning, and before you did anything else, you would have to go to this basin. And you would have to wash yourself clean. You would have to purify yourself before you went into the tabernacle or before you even started sacrificing. What's interesting, what scholars say, is that a priest would actually go to this labor again and again and again, and here's why, because you would, it was such a bloody job. They were more butchers than they were priests, 
that you constantly had to be going back again, cleaning off the blood and cleaning off the blood and cleaning off the blood. Okay? So that's what this was. But here's what I need you to understand about the laver, though. What the laver tells us is that not, if the first piece of furniture showed us that substitution is necessary, this one shows us that purity is necessary. A cleansing is necessary. You got to be clean to go into God's presence. You got to just show up. You got to be clean, it says. Okay? Now, let's look at the next thing. The, the, the next thing that we see, now we're, getting, now we're getting in, we're going through the first veil, and we're going into the temple now, I mean, into the tabernacle now. On, on the right side, so, so since we're going uh, from east to west, on the right side, the northern side of the tabernacle, you have what's called the bread of the presence, okay? Or the, the table of shub or shoe bread or show bread. Now, here's why this bread was so important. If you, if you see it in the photo, there was 12 pieces of bread. And each one of those loaves of bread represented a tribe in Israel, okay? So here's what would happen. Every week, every seven days on the Sabbath, the priests would go in, they would bake new bread, they would go in and they would replace the bread every seven days, every seven days, every seven days. And the reason why God created this table, the purpose of this table was to show people that God was going to provide for them. It's when Jesus, when Jesus says, uh, uh, pray for your daily bread, he's making reference to this table. Is that, hey, hey, there's bread on the table, so God's going to provide. For every need, every, every physical need, every spiritual need, every emotional need, God is our provider. That's what that table represented. Then on the other side, so opposite of this, uh, of the bread, uh, you see the, the menorah or, or, or the, uh, the lampstand, okay? Now, now, the picture that I picked, it describes it as a golden candlestick, which sounds like a weapon from the game Clue, right? Like, <laughs> it, it's not a candlestick, okay? It, it, here's why that's not accurate. Because there wasn't any candles. It was a lamp-based, it was an oil-based lampstand. It was oil. No candles. So the candlestick thing doesn't fly. But that's what they decided to do. It was Mr. Mrs. Violet, you know, in the, in the library. <laughs> okay? Now, if you look at the lampstand, it looks kind of like a tree. You, you, the, the, the middle part is the, the, the trunk, and then... The, the other three th uh, branches that break off on either side, so, so there's seven total, it, it are, are the branches. And so what this represented, it was meant to represent the tree of life that was in the garden. This represented life. It represented God's light. It, re it represented that God was the source of all life and salvation. So it, was, it would point backwards to the original tree of life in the garden, but it would also point forward to the ultimate tree of life that's in the new heavens and the new earth. It pointed backward and it pointed forward, okay? Now, let's go to the next piece of furniture. The next thing that we, oh, actually, side note real quick about the, go back to the lampstand for a second. Scholars estimate that it was about 100 pounds of gold. It was only one of two things in the, in the tabernacle that was made of pure gold. So in our day, it would have been somewhere around $1,200,000, just that lampstand. Over a million dollars. That's what we're talking about here. That's how much gold we're talking about. It would put Mr. T to shame, okay? <laughs> Let's go to the next thing. The next thing we see is we see another altar. But this altar is different from the first altar for two reasons. One, this one is made out of gold. The other one was made out of bronze. Now, the other one was made out of bronze for two reasons. One, because bronze was the stronger metal. 
Bronze is a stronger metal than both gold and silver. So since there was constantly fire there, it had to be a strong metal so that it wouldn't burn up, right? But the other reason why the, the one further away was bronze and the one closer was gold is because scholars say that the closer you got into God's presence, the more expensive the metals became. So there was bronze out there, and the closer we get in, it starts becoming gold, okay? Now, why was this altar so important? Well, the reason why this altar was so important is because this altar uh, was the incense that, that, was, that came from it was the, from the burning coals that came from the other altar, so the reason why it was smoking was because morning and evening, what the priests would do is they would grab coals from the first altar, and they would bring them into the golden altar, set them on there. They would mix it with, with spices so it would be a sweet-smelling aroma. It says in Ephesians, that, in Ephesians 5 that Jesus is an aroma, a sweet aroma to God. He's a sacrifice that was a sweet aroma. They're making reference to this. And so the, the, the aroma, they would take the burning coals, they would bring them and put them on the altar... And then as the aroma went up, it would be a saying, hey, God, this is, we hope that this is pleasing to you, okay? Now, what's fascinating about this particular uh, uh, altar is that it represented the prayers of the priest and the, people, and the people going up to God. That's what it represented. So even as the priest was putting altars in it, the, he wasn't just supposed to do it like absentmindedly. He was supposed to be praying for the people as he put the coals on the altar, then as the, 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 the incense started going up, not only would it be a, sacri a sacrifice to God, hey, a pleasing aroma, but it was also meant to signify the prayers of God's people going up into heaven. Okay? So that was the second to last furniture. The last piece of furniture that I want to look at is the one that we all have heard of before, right? The, the Ark of the Covenant. Hashtag Indiana Jones, right? It's the one Indy was going after. The Ark of the Covenant is the last piece of furniture located in the furthest place in the tabernacle, which is the most holy place. The, the, the other three we just looked at were in the holy place. This is the most holy. This is the holy of holies. Now, the reason why the Ark uh, uh, the, the, or, the, and, or the mercy seat, I'll describe it. I'll give you the distinction in a second. But the reason why the Ark was so important is because it represented the very presence of God. Like, what we see in Exodus is that the presence of God was located on top of the lid in between the cherubim. That's where God's presence was. So, so think about that. Out of all the places in the universe that God can be, that was the room he chose. That was the piece of wood he chose. It was wood covered with gold. That's where God was. Now, inside of this ark, there was three things. There was the law of God. There was the rod of Aaron, and there was a, uh, a bottle with manna in it. So you see the law of God, the rod of Aaron, and a bottle of manna. We'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit, but those are the three things that were in it. But I want to talk to you about the, 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 the lid. The lid is very important. See, the ark is the, the wooden part underneath, the, the, the actual box, but, but the lid is, is solid gold, way more expensive than even the lampstand that we looked at. It's the only other thing that's made of pure gold. And, and, and so these, the, the way God told him to create it was, I want you to make a, 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 a lid that's solid gold, and I want two cherubim, two angels, with their wings touching, looking down at the sacrifice. Now, here's why I bring up the idea of sacrifice, because once a year, 
during Yom Kippur is the only time that someone can go back there on the Day of Atonement. The priest would go there and he would take the, 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 the blood of a perfect, spotless, blameless lamb and he would pour the blood. He would sprinkle the blood on that area in between the two angels. And what would happen when that would happen is it wasn't just covering for the individual sins like the other altar. It would cover the sins of all of Israel for an entire year. And then the next year, they would have to do it again. And then they would have to do it again. And they would have to do it again. But that's why that was so important. But, but listen, this area was so frightening and scary because you were in the very presence of God that they would have to tie a rope to the leg of the high priest with bells on it. So just in case the dude died, they can just pull him out. If the bell stopped ringing, something happened to you. You did something wrong, bro. Okay? There goes Yom Kippur for the year. So that's why it was so important. So now that I've walked you through each one of the uh, furnishings, and, and now that I've kind of given you a layout of why the tabernacle was established the way it was established, here's what I want to talk to you about. If you go back to my two points. As we look at the religious approach, here's what I want to argue for this morning. For a lot of you, this might be the first time you've heard some of these things. And maybe for others of you, you've heard some of it, but you didn't know everything that I just brought up. It's, it was some new information, right? But one of the things that happens when you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the tabernacle and a group of people that had nothing to do with us from a long time ago is you can start to think, oh, well, that's good for them, but it really doesn't affect me. Like all of you were probably very engaged because of the information I was giving you, but you weren't really feeling, feeling a lot of conviction because you're like, what does this have to do with me today? Nothing, right? But I would argue that it actually has everything to do with you. And here's why. Because even though the style or the, the approach that they have is different from your approach, I would argue that even though it seems very different on the surface, in its essence, it's the very same thing all of us do. So, so, so let me put this. On the surface, it feels very different. But if you're being honest, there's a part of you that just feels like this is familiar to me. Like this makes sense to me. Like, I don't know if I would do it the way they did it, but if I ever came up with a religion on how to approach God, it would have a lot of steps just like this. You know why? Because we are religious people. We are checklist people. And so if you're sitting here today and you are a Mormon or a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist or a, a new age uh, philosopher, whatever you are here this morning, I need you to know that if what you believe in is not Christianity, you are in that first category. There is a religious approach that you have to God. And you're like, well, I'm not religious. I don't even go to church. Yes, you are. There is a righteousness that you are trying to attain. You know that the word righteousness, the word righteousness seems very biblical, but all the word righteousness means is to live up to a certain standard. And whatever group you're in, whatever religion you're in, whatever worldview you're in, there are standards that need to be met. There are ladders that need to be climbed. There are boxes that need to be checked. So whether you believe in atheism or activism or patriotism or pragmatism or... or, or uh, 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 humanism or whatever it is, whatever, whatever ism is your ism. Materialism, consumerism, individualism, whichever one is yours, I can promise you that it's a religious approach. 
That, that whatever group you're in, whatever subculture you're in, there are certain rules that you have to follow in order to be an insider in that group of people. There are ladders to climb, there are boxes to check, and there are standards to meet. And so you are religious even though you don't know you're religious. You are religious even though this is your first time at church. You are very religious. Every single one of us is because we are born religious. It's our default setting. It is our default setting. It's the only thing we know. And if you were ever to create your own religion, it would be, maybe it wouldn't be exactly like this, but it would be similar to this. Because there's a part of us that thinks, if I'm ever going to be accepted by God, I got to do this, 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 this. I got to get my act together. I got I to cut the, the habit. I got uh, uh, to you know, do this. I got to do that. That's just how we think. I can't pray until I fix things. I can't come back until everything is good. Because that's what religious people do. And so that's all you get from this morning, that you're a religious person. That's good. That's a big step forward. Every person in here is religious. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, I don't know about that. I don't know if I agree with you. I, I don't really know this guy. I don't know if I can trust him. I don't even know if that's a thing. That, how, do you know, how do you know I'm religious? You don't even, you don't even know me. Okay? Well, here's what I want to do just for the next few minutes. I, I want to give you uh, uh, a checklist. I want to give you a, a list of symptoms that religious people exhibit. Okay? And as I go through these symptoms, I want you to ask yourself, how religious am I really? And here's what's funny. This list applies not just to people who are non-Christians. It can also rely to, apply to people who are Christians. Christians can be way more religious than they think. Okay? So, so let's go through this real quick. The first symptom that religious people display is confidence. Okay? Now, on the surface, there's really nothing wrong with confidence. The problem is this. Their confidence is not in God. Their confidence is in themselves. So when they do good, their confidence is up. And when they do bad, their confidence is down. Okay? Now, here's how I know that's true. Here's how I know. Because religious people, when they have a good week, and they've read their Bible, and they've given money, and they've been nice to their kids, they come to church that week and hands up and praising and I, I, I'm ready to worship. I earned it this week. Hey, pastor, you need me to preach? I got it. <laughs> I did it. It was all me. That very same person seven days later doesn't pray as much, doesn't read as much, doesn't give as much, isn't as nice, comes to the same church seven days later, can't even look up, can't sing a song, can't take a note. They can't because their confidence isn't in God. Their confidence is in themselves. Their confidence isn't in what Jesus did, it's in what they're doing. So the first way you can tell if you're religious or not is, is by asking, where is my confidence found? The other way you can tell is by asking, who am I comparing myself with? Because religious people love comparing. They almost have to, actually, because it's the only way you can determine if you're doing good or not. They don't really use God's standard, because if they really use God's standard, they'd be crushed. So, so they know that deep down. So what they do is they compare themselves with worse people, and then they feel better because other people are worse. That's what you do. I don't know, for those of you who were here on, on, on Friday, we were looking at uh, Luke chapter 23, and in Luke chapter 23, it says that the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, the Greek word, it's in English, it says they were sneering at Jesus. And the Greek word there means to look down on someone. To feel superior to someone. You know why? Because that's what religious people do. 
That's their spiritual gift. <laughs> Sneering. They have an elevator mindset. Every person they meet, they figure out, are you a floor above me or a floor under me? If you're above me, then I'm crushed. If you're below me, then I'm puffed up. The next symptom that you should be displaying if you are a religious person is that religion affects your confessing. Here, here's what I mean. Religious people love confessing. Like, they're very good at confessing. But here's how you know you're religious. The only type of sin that religious people confess are the bad stuff they do. They only ever confess the bad stuff. And some of you might be thinking, I thought that was the only kind of stuff there was. No, 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 no. You know that you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons? You know you can pray because people are watching. You can give because people are watching. You can give because you want something in return. So much of our obedience is actually just a contract. I'm doing this so that you do something back. A religious person can confess the bad stuff, but they can never confess the good stuff they did for the wrong reasons. They can't. You know why they can't? Because if they start confessing the good stuff they did for the wrong reasons, then the entire house of cards falls. That's the very thing that they're building their identity on. That's the very thing that's giving them value and significance. So if I go after that, I got nothing left. So religious people can't confess. They can confess the bad stuff all they want, but they can't confess the good stuff that they've done for the wrong reasons. The other thing that religious people do is religious people are very controlling. And by controlling, I mean they need to have power and control over every area of their life. They, they really struggle with trusting others, and they really struggle with trusting God. And here's why. Here's why. Think about it. If you're religious... You're not relying on what Jesus did for you. You're relying on what you do for you, right? So you're not trusting God for salvation. So if you're not trusting God for the biggest thing, why are you going to trust him for the little thing? God, if I got that, I don't need your help with this. Go help someone who needs it. The broken people. The sinners. Okay? The other thing that uh, religious people do and that you, will, you are religious if you have this symptom is, is religious people are very conditional. It's I do this and you give me this in return. I do this and then you give me this in return. It's very conditional. It's so conditional that religious people are terrified of grace. They're terrified of it. Like if you've been coming here to Tri Village for any period of time, you know that it's grace every week. And the problem with grace is that grace is like a roller coaster with no seatbelt. It's fun, but it's scary. <laughs> and religious people don't like that. They, they, they treat grace like if it's one of those infomercials you see at night. Like Jesus is like just trying to scam you. Like there's a bunch of fine print you don't know about. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure, Jesus is no strings attached. Sure it is. You don't believe it. You think he's lying to you. And so you put some of your eggs in the, the, the grace uh, basket, but not all of them. Come, come on now. He, he, they're like the, the, the people that accuse Paul. They're like, if, if, if grace abounds, then sin will abound. There's no way that it could just be all grace because then people will do whatever they want. They don't get that. So, so they're very conditional because it's the way they view the world. And the last way you can tell if you're religious or not, even if you're a Christian, is how you react to negative circumstances. The quickest way to determine if you are religious or not is by seeing how you deal with pain and suffering and difficulty. Because here's what religious people do. The reason why religious people struggle with suffering is because they are convinced that God owes them better. So when 
the test result isn't positive, or the bank account is low, or the kid is in trouble, or you can't find a spouse and you're still single, religious people get angry because they're like, God, I've, I've scratched your back. Now it's time for you to scratch my back. Just like the elder brother in the parable. The younger one gets pure, unadulterated, no strings attached grace, and he's ticked. Whoa, 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 you're doing what for this guy? You're giving him the fattened calf? Are you serious? Very elder brother-like. When, when I tell you, I, I can see it, I can see it. When, when someone comes into my office or someone needs counseling and they're, and they're angry at God because something went wrong, I'm like, That's, this is religion here. There's religion. So those are the symptoms. Okay, so now that we've identified the, go back to my two points, now that we've identified the religious approach, what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to look at the resurrected approach. I want to take a closer look at the resurrected approach. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might be sitting here and you're still not convinced. You, you, you're still, I don't know. I don't know if the religious, I don't know if this religious thing is, is as bad as you say it is. It's pretty good. I've been doing it my whole life. It's worked out for me. Have you tried it? Because it's good for me. Some of you are still not convinced. Well, just give me a few more minutes. I got you. Okay, I got you. Okay? You, you think that religion isn't that bad. But here's why we know, in light of the passage that we looked at, that religion, religion is that bad. Okay? The first reason why religion is very, very bad is because religion is only temporary. Think about this. Every day they had to go to the temple, to the tabernacle. Every week, every month, every year. It was never done. Again and again and again and again. Religion is temporary. Religion is I did it and then it's only a little bit before I got to do it again. It is perpetual. It is not permanent. It happens again and again. That's one of the reasons why religion doesn't work. But the other reason why religion doesn't work is because religion can't give you true purity. Think about this. Think about this. These priests went to the water again and again and again and again. No matter how many times they went to the water, no matter how much they washed their hands, they can never purify their hearts. Their hearts were still wicked, they were still broken, and they were still sinful. So, so religion can only give you exterior purification. It, can't, it doesn't fix the real problem. It's like trying to deal with skin cancer using Neutrogena. It, it doesn't work. Okay? And so, so, so religion can't give you real purification. It, it just can't do it. It's not built for it. The other reason why religion doesn't work is not just because it's temporary. It's not just because of the purity thing. But it's also because religion can't give you true community with God. It can't give you true intimacy with God. You know, one of the things that stood, up, stood out to me as I was studying this week is that when you look at the tabernacle, the, the, the entire structure, there is no place to sit, not anywhere. Have you, have you noticed that? There's not a seat. There's not a couch. There's not a full time. There's nothing. Why? Well, because because God, it, there, was, there was so much fear. There was so much anxiety. You couldn't stay. You want, the, the, the priests were in and out. They, they was, you weren't going to stay there. That's God's house. See, the, that's the problem. And even though there's one seat, it's called the mercy seat, but that seat was only God's seat. And if a priest sat there, he'd die instantly. And I know that because there's a story where they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark starts to fall. And this one guy reaches out to try to keep it from falling, and God kills him instantly. 
One commentator said, here was the issue that he had. He thought that he was cleaner than the ground. That's the issue. He thought he was cleaner than the ground. And God said, no, you're not. Okay? So, so, so we see that religion doesn't work for those first three reasons. But, you know, another reason why religion doesn't work is because in the heart of this tabernacle, inside the Ark of the Covenant, I said there was three things, right? There was God's law, there was Aaron's rod, and there was a bowl or a cup of manna. Now, I don't have time to get into these stories, but what I can tell you, if you have time this weekend to look at it, look at it. These three stories represent not the righteousness of man, but the sinfulness of man. The law exposes man's sinfulness. Aaron's rod exposes man's pridefulness. And then the manna exposes man's ungratefulness. The entire ark reminded them, you can't do it. You are a sinner. You are broken. And these three artifacts are proof. They're proof. And then the last reason, actually more is the second to last, but, but, but let's, let's be honest here, okay? But the, 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 the last reason why religion doesn't work is because God, think about this, this is how it all breaks down. He did 400 years in the tabernacle, 400 years in the temple, and what a lot of people forget is that he did 400 years where he left. He left. It says in Ezekiel, Ezekiel had a vision, and he sees the glory of God leaving the temple. Why did God leave? Well, Ezekiel tells us why he left. He left because he was tired of their religion. The religion wasn't working anymore. It was just, they were just going through the motions. Their hands were doing stuff, but their hearts were distant. God got tired, and God left the building. And the saddest part is that these people kept on sacrificing. They kept on going to the temple. God wasn't there anymore. But they never really cared about God, so they could just keep doing it because it wasn't for God. It was for the ritual. It was to make them feel better, not God. So who cares if God wasn't there? Religion isn't concerned about God. Religion is concerned about self. Religion is all about you. But here's the problem. When it's all about you, then it's all on you. When it's all about you, it is all on you. Look, it sounds really good to have it all about you. But the, the good news becomes bad news when you realize it's all on you. That's the shadow side of religion. That religion never tells you. Okay? So, so get this. God gets to a place. He tells them to build a tabernacle. Then he tells them to build a temple. And then all of a sudden, it's almost like God forgets to, to his architecture skills, and he never tells them to build anything else. Why does God give up on buildings. Why does God give up on structures? Well, God does it because he knew that what we needed was not more property. What we needed was a person. What we needed was not more real estate. What we needed was a redeemer. What we needed was not more expectations. What we needed was expiation. What we needed was not more steps. What we needed was a savior. What we needed was not more application. What we needed was atonement. Can I get an amen? That's what we see. But here's what's crazy, guys. Here's where the grace comes in. Here's where the resurrection comes in. God leaves for 400 years, and then one day he decides to come back. But when God comes back, he doesn't show up in a tent. He shows up in flesh. When he comes back, he doesn't show up in a temple. He shows up in a manger. Okay? God 
comes back. And here's the part that I was excited about. Here's the part that I was geeking about, okay? So, so, so John, the, the apostle John, he wants people to know that Jesus is better than Judaism, that Jesus is better than religion, that Jesus is better than the tabernacle. So what he does, and this is beautiful because he has all these Jewish readers, he proves to them that Jesus is better. He shows them that Jesus is the better tabernacle. Now, before I jump in, I'm going to go in order now. This is, I'm not going to skip ahead. This is going to be chronological order through John. And John's showing them how Jesus is the better tabernacle. The beginning of John, verse 14 of chapter 1 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word there, dwelling, you know what the Greek word there is that? Tabernacled. He tabernacled. Let's go to the next one. Jesus is not just the greater tabernacle. He's also the greater brazen altar. It says in John 1 verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is the better altar. He, that we, you needed a lamb to go any further. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Let's go to the next one. Then we see that he's also the greater laver, the greater basin. It says in John 4, 13 through 14, Jesus is talking to the woman of the well. And he says, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is the greater basin. Let's keep going. Then we see, this is all in order now. I'm not skipping ahead. This is all chronological order in John. John chapter 6, verse 35, it says, Jesus declared, I am the what? The bread of life. He says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He is the greater table, the greater bread of presence. Let's keep going. And then he, we see he's the greater lampstand. In John 9, 4 through 5, it says, as long as, just Jesus talking, he says, as long as it is day, we must, do work, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the what? Light. The light of the world. He's the greater lampstand. Let's go see going. Then we see that he's the altar of incense. Remember, the altar represented the prayers of the priest and the prayers of the people going up into heaven. In John 17, we have the high priestly prayer. It says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he what? Prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me for they are yours. Next one is the best one. You ready? The resurrection. Ready? John 20, 11 through 12. It says, now Mary, everyone say, now Mary, Mary. stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels. Not one angel, two angels in white. Listen to this. Seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and one at the foot. So, so we, we see, just like the Ark of the Covenant, just like the mercy seat, there's two angels, one on this side, one on that, looking down, and they are amazed. First Peter, say that, first Peter says that angels long to look into the salvation that Jesus came to bring. They're, they're shocked because he's gone. Think about this. Think about this. Everything else was similar, right? They, the new holy of holies was the tomb. Uh, the, 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 where Jesus used to be, that was, that was the, the mercy seat. The, the angels are the two cherubim. But there was something missing. 
There was no sacrifice. It was gone. The, the lamb was gone. And, and the angels say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. And then what's crazy about Mary is she turns around, and the first person she sees is Jesus. She doesn't recognize him, and she starts complaining to Jesus about her dying problem. She's, she's complaining to the resurrected Savior about her dying problem. How many Christians here today are, are complaining to the resurrected Savior about your dying marriage? How many Christians here today are complaining to the resurrected Savior about your dying finances? How many Christians here today are complaining to the resurrected Savior about your dying relationships? He won. Why are you living like he lost? Why are you living like he's dead? I can't tell you how many Christians are offering, are still, even after all this, are still offering sacrifices on altars that have already been torn down. How many Christians to this day are still purifying themselves in basins that no longer have water in them? How many Christians today, right now, are standing outside of curtains that have already been torn apart? Come on. Jesus says at the cross, it is finished. On Friday, Jesus says, it is finished. On Sunday, God said, amen. And when Jesus says it is finished, you know what he's saying is finished? Religion is finished. When Jesus resurrected, religion died. That's the day religion died. If religion had a gravestone, that would be the day it died. Okay? Here it goes. When Jesus says it is finished, he was saying that religion is finished. He was saying that performing is finished. He was saying that pretending is finished. He was saying that self-salvation projects are finished. He was saying that shame is finished. He was saying that guilt is finished. He was saying that fear is finished. He was saying that hypocrisy is finished. It's finished. It's done. It's over. Jesus gives us what religion can never give us. Jesus gives us pardon before performance. He gives us acceptance before activity. He gives us approval before action. And he gives us forgiveness before fruit. That's what the resurrection tells me. I don't know what the resurrection tells you, but that's what it tells me. So here's my prayer for you uh, this morning. I want to, my prayer is for two different groups, for, for the people here who have yet to place their faith in Jesus, for the people here who uh, are considering Christianity, I pray that today would be the day that you move from the religious approach to the resurrected approach. I pray that from this moment on, you would live in light of the resurrection. And my other prayer is for the people who've already believed in Jesus, the people who are already on the resurrected path, but have fallen back into the religious path. My prayer is actually the same prayer that I had for the first group. My prayer is that from this moment on, you would live in light of the resurrection. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.